The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us either on campus or online. To learn more, visit eomega.org. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Welcome home, everybody. Welcome to a place that is safe and judgment-free and where we work to build a home within us. And I call it home because it's a place where I can recognize when my mind is creating thoughts that are separating me from my true self and others. And I can recognize when there are fear and judgment-based thoughts before they turn into shame. And shame, I despise so much because I feel like it separates us from each other. And today, I am interviewing somebody that that I believe is a leader in dragging shame out of the shadows and really, really helping people to put words on the feelings that that are shame and that manifest into shame. And I had the honor of being interviewed by Dr. Elizabeth Cronin, my guest today, sometime back. And she is a host for the New Books Network, um, where she interviews authors for the Psychology Channel, as well as the Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness Channels. And please check her out. Um, the links will be, are in this description. And I clearly remember when you interviewed me and how safe I felt to dive into the story and to really uh, share from my heart in a in from a place of vulnerability. And I think that that's key. Dr. Marissa Franco talks about how what we feel vulnerable about is what we have learned to feel shame about or in ourselves. And when we talked, I was 
in shame, yet aware of it, and then able to transform it into power, which is what we're going to do here on this podcast, by having that safe place. And so that is right up the alley of what Dr. Elizabeth Cronin does. And it is such an honor to have you here today. And I so need to pick your brain about the new podcast host and all the ways that you walked through it. And just thank you so much for being here today. And please, where did it all begin? So thanks for having me. Um, I guess it all begins where life begins, just, you know, in your childhood and, um, you know, developing and over the years that you develop sort of becoming known as having certain gifts or talents or challenges. And I was always a very sensitive child. So um, that came with for me, that that was some of my early experiences of really feeling shame, experiencing shame, is just being very emotional um, and people thinking it was too too much, you know. And so then feeling like, like okay, you, you know, you're yeah. Say more. Dive dive in there more. Like just that, you know, how the reaction to something is too much, too intense, too loud, too. You heard loud. that. Yes. Oh, yes. And and in reality, if I had been my own parent to myself, then I probably would have agreed too, because this was all before I went on to become really interested in psychology and really learned and had a deeper understanding about emotions and how to help someone with very intense emotions. So, you know, I work with a lot of parents. Um, in therapy, trying to help them understand, too, how to kind of break the cycle of mm-hmm. perpetuating shame by looking at emotions in a, you know, with a deeper understanding and a little bit more respect, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is super important. Because as, as you were saying, you know, as soon as you get into shame, you're talking about feeling so awful about yourself that you don't want to share anything. So you you really just want to hide. You don't want to. And so from a place of shame too, you can be so distraught and someone might ask you what's, what's going on and you don't even want to open, open up and explain because you've already decided that to share that with anybody else is only going to cause them to even distance further from you. Right, that fear. Um, did you have to, and did you go back um, to that that little girl? Because um, you know, we always hear, uh, "Forget the past, get over it, move on," and whatever. But, but she's there in us, and and you know, I mean, what I learned the hard way is to to listen to to her and and we call them parts that are in us but did you and do that and what did that feel like and what what were the kind of words that you would put on that that label i'm sensitive you know mm-hmm. can you dive in there 
Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because one of one of my kids, I have you know, I have three biological children, and one of my my youngest actually recently asked me if I had ever taken the highly sensitive person quiz, and I said no, I actually I actually haven't, and she had recently taken it. And she and her good friend had taken it and just had a lot of highly sensitive, highly sensitive person. There's a little quiz. You can Google it. It just has a series of questions and it just things like, you know, talks about how intensely you, you, you feel things, but it also said how you have like a very um, vivid imagination and very active internal um, life, you know, thinking about things and startling easily. It had all these things. And she was funny because she was like, I'm, answering these things and thinking, yes, yes, yes. And she's thinking, oh my gosh, this is my mother. This is my mother. This is my mother. So she was telling me about it. And the other thing that she said too, is she said, um, as her friend was doing, because her friend's also very sensitive, they were laughing. They were saying, isn't everybody like this? You know, right? just a sense of like, you have that sense that isn't everybody like this? Unless in being like that, it's become, it's been a problem. You know, it's, it's irritated other people or it's frustrated other people um, or it's excluded you from something. Yeah. And that's where like, it's this pivotal point of um, taking on the label and what it's doing within somebody, especially a child and what it did to you versus having, you know, like you, a, a parent who can, who can say, you know, well, let's, let's flip that understanding because being quote unquote sensitive means, you know, you're in tuned to others' feelings and energies around you. And um, so, so what is it like? What was it like for you? Like, how did it feel to be labeled quote unquote sensitive. And then how is that helpful while you're <laughs> navigating the waters of your little one finding this label on themselves? You know, what was it like for you? Right. So, so that, that's kind of what I, you know, was interesting for me is that, you know, she's actually not so little anymore. She's, she's a, a graduate student studying psychology now. And, um, and so she's not little, and yet I think the whole idea that maybe she was, sen- you know, a highly sensitive person was a novel idea to her. I think she okay. had more of experience that this is kind of the way I am. I think a little less judgment. Um, no, I mean. How cool that she's following in your footsteps. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really, it, yeah. it's, it's so exciting. So I was one of seven children too. So, you know, um, it's definitely it's not, it's not easy if you have um, a child who takes a long time to get to recover from, from things who's very, you know, gets, has deep emotions and then takes a long time to bounce back. So I really have a lot of, um, I actually have a lot of empathy for parents that have children like that because it's more time consuming and complicated, but it's really hard. It was very hard for me as a child because that was the first sense that I had that there's something wrong with me and something bad about me. And I, I, I've done tons of therapy, which I mean, even I, though I, there was so much going on around you as the youngest of seven, um, it wasn't the youngest. I was the third or, or 
But just being part, I mean, we were all like, it was an 11 year span. So it was just boom, 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 boom. And I have two brothers that were born 11 months apart. And there's just a lot going on. And so it wasn't, it's not easy to have somebody who needs more comforting, somebody who needs a little bit more support. Um, It just, it just isn't easy. And so I think that, that meant then that there were times that I was, I really was alone with a lot of my emotions and feelings. And that, that, that fuels the fear too. So you might be feeling some sort of shame and then you feel separate from people. And then sometimes it's too much for other people. And, and so it just fuels the sense of fear around. Like a sense of not, did you have the sense though of, so not being seen, not having the eye contact with somebody saying what's really going on in there. And then would that have quelled the sensitivity or the, the, whatever thoughts were going in your head, you know, what created the, on the outside, what created the sense of isolation? And then on the inside, we know it was the thoughts. So on the outside, what was creating that sense? A lot of people and what else? Well, so I'll, I'll give you, I, I can give you a sort of a benign example. It's okay. not, you know, it's that, so I was one of seven kids and my two older sisters um, were up early one morning before a ski trip. And one of them was leaning against the gas stove. And so her nightgown caught on fire and she was in a total panic and starts yelling fire, fire and running around. And my older sister is chasing her and put the fire out with pillows or, and it was all fine. But in the whole chaos of all of this, I'd been sleeping and I wake up and I hear fire and I have this big reaction like, oh my gosh, there's a fire and everything. And mm-hmm. I just jumped into like the school protocol for the for fire drill. So I uh-huh. just go down the hall, I get my younger siblings. So I, I get like the baby out of the crib and the two toddlers and my younger sister and march them all outside, cross the street and we're all made them stand in, I did exactly what we did at school, turn and face the building, wait for the fire trucks to come. And, you know, my, my older sister about, you know, probably we were out there probably like five or six minutes. That's cool. I know it's really funny. So, I mean, this shows you how effective those trainings are, but so we're out there about five minutes or so. And at some point, I guess the fire was out. My parents, meanwhile, had been running around trying to find out what was going on. And then my older sister I'm sure my parents were attending to my sister who been to burnt just slightly, but she oh, came it was said, actually in oh, there, the- was, there was a fire. Oh in her, my. Yeah. There was a fire on her, on her nightgown. So she, but you know, my sister put it out, but you know, so it, I, my, to my point is that, you know, I just sort of had this big reaction and I go outside and in a way, like I was creating more drama for my family and everything, not intentionally, because my older sister comes out and she's like, what are you doing out here? You know, just, I had a lot of shame about that, you know, like, like, wow, what are you doing out here? What? And I just, and I just remember feeling, you know, for, I think you have a sense of like embarrassment, like it's embarrassing that I did this, but then I felt then, you know, the overlay is sort of the shame around what's wrong with you. Kind of like, why do you, why do you do things like this? I mean, it's you know, certain things are embarrassing, but it's when you, it goes to the deeper level of like, okay, that's beyond what, what people do. 
it's sort of, that's the point. It's sort of like, what's the sort of the, what's wrong with you feeling? But the truth, the underlying truth that none of the, the shame thoughts or whatever anybody was saying that what, what was the underlying truth in those moments that you did that? Oh, my intention was, I mean, my intention was just to just be protective of myself. Exactly. You know, and. Exactly. Right. And that gets muddled underneath how the mind was creating these self-judgments and then the judgments from the others, because the underlying truth is beautiful. Right. 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 I mean, you know, so that's why I'm saying it's kind of, it's, it's, you know, it's a story I. I can can share easily because there's nothing there's it's just it kind of shows how how shame develops without anybody intending any harm to anybody which which I think happens a lot and I work a lot with you know parents with kids that are challenging and often the parents just feel like what you know oh why is this child like this and I try to guide them over and over again to say whatever it is that they're doing that's either upsetting or offensive or problematic. You need to you need to realize that that's the best that they, they can do. That so get on their side and try to help them help show them what else they could do. Because the alternative is to just to to convey to them the frustration or the you know that you feel. And so, so shame's a tough, a tough thing to battle because um, I also think that if there's, there's shame around having, there's shame around other people's behavior. So for example, if you take like um, parenting or you take being in a relationship with someone with an addiction, it, there's also sort of a shame around like, and a sense of responsibility for somebody else's behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes people retaliate and, and say like, you should be ashamed of yourself as mm-hmm. a way to try to like coax somebody into like not acting that way. Mm. Won't yeah. work. No. Won't work. And what you said was beautiful though about, um, I mean, it relates to being present as a, as a parent and, um, you know, acknowledging what's happening, what they're feeling in the moment, right? And if someone kind of had done that for you and seen the underlying truth then that and, and verbalized, well, she was just trying to keep us safe, you know, or thank you for trying. That was funny, you know, that you did that. Um, would, would that have helped to create then the story that the mind attached onto attaches onto and feeds it more and more and more. Like, why am I so weird? Why did I do the drill? And, and whatever else came up that then how affected you emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, probably. And so when you were carrying that label of I'm sensitive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and those shame feelings like, how did they manifest? You said, you know, emotionally, um, it was this catch-22. It made you even probably more self-conscious. 
Definitely made me more self-conscious. And so, you know, over the years, I think what happened was, you know, it just took a heavier, it felt like a heavier burden on me that I was definitely made a big deal out of things. And, you know, I took up too much time and my emotions took too much space and the way it ended up um, manifesting for me was by the time I was 14, I was, you know, struggling with an eating disorder and Mm. I was, I was anorexic and, you know, I don't, you know, didn't intend to shrink myself, but in my understanding and therapy and coming to terms with all that, I, you know, definitely didn't feel prepared to go out into the adult world because Mm -hmm. I didn't. So, so to, to make my body more childlike, there were just Mm. so many ways that having a becoming anorexic made sense to me, even though I didn't consciously wasn't trying to do those things. I made myself smaller I made myself more childlike. I made my world smaller. I gave myself a sense of control over myself mm-hmm. by, by controlling what I ate. So they were like these core beliefs. I mean, what would you say were the core grounding beliefs that then your mind kept creating different thoughts and fears based on? So, I mean... What I'm hearing you say, the core beliefs from childhood were, um, I am a nuisance, or I, or or I'm a sense of unworthiness. And but what else? In the first couple of episodes, I do an overview um, of the book and the story, and it's really focused on beginning with recognizing those core beliefs from childhood that our mind latches onto today. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's kind of a first step of awareness of how our mind will try to create shame. But if we're aware of those fears and judgments, so what do you think yours are mm-hmm. based on what we just discussed? I think it, I definitely thought, I definitely felt like, you know, had that sense of that there was something different and wrong with me and, and that I needed to, hide that. So there's something inherently wrong that can't be fixed. Yeah, something inherently wrong. So there was something about, you know, I think different than feeling um, guilty or embarrassed. I think shame is really a sense of like, I'm I'm a bad seed or something like there's just, so it's me. It's not something I've done or anything. It's just me. The way I am, the way I was, was, was too much, was, um, was somehow wrong and that wow. I needed to, I needed to work hard. And, and, you know, you, you ask about what's a, what's a song. That's that you really, super really powerful. Like. The way I am is wrong. Mm. Yeah. The, the, the B, it got to the, the, the presence, the being. Right. And I just, I want to say this, that I had a loving family and loving parents, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, important to put out there too, that there was, and because that also further complicated things for me too. Had I, had there, had, had I been less privileged and less well cared for, then, then maybe I would have, but that was, that also made it very confusing too, that I was at times deeply unhappy and there didn't seem to be any apparent reason. You know, and I and so I grew up the guilt, yes, and the shame. Okay, so right, so 
Yes. Guilt. Um, and you know, and I grew up in a family where we believed in working hard and not, not feeling sorry for yourself and like, and just recognizing Mm. that you were, you know, being very grateful for what you had and knowing that people struggled and had a lot less than you. And, you know, we were always, um, we were, you know, members of a church and so it was, so it was very, so it was very, you know, very, very confusing. And, you know, and people, uh, you know, we just didn't under, we just didn't understand. Um, so it was, so it was tough. I mean, it was, it was really tough. I remember getting to college and thinking, oh my gosh, I never want to go back. Like I would never go back to being a kid again. I, I had just, wow. I remember distinctly thinking that like, Wow, I'm glad I got, I made, like, I got here. I made it. Because when I went to college, it was the first time I felt like, wow, there's a lot of tolerance. I go to college, it was like, I met all kinds of people that are doing things that, you know, we would have thought was sort of crazy or Mm -hmm. um, definitely questionable. Mm -hmm. And yet, they were fine. They were fine. Well, this is fascinating because you talked about, like, nothing on the outside creating it, but your mind created this, there's something inherently wrong with me, that core belief. And then, and then from the outside, so that's your own shame within. And then, then on the outside, this gratitude focus and good family, church going family, that's the outside kind of sources of quote unquote shame. We don't have to force this, but just the outside sources of your guilt. And so you have that big picture, but then when you went to college, you you saw other people more on the outside that that also had or or was it, you know, the the college activities or was it that they too shared their problems or had problems or there was kind of less of a perfectionist thing around you that was with your family? Was that it? Right. That, that was it. And so, so it was, it was, yes, it was very, very um, life-changing to realize that there was a lot more tolerance than what I thought. uh, And tolerance for, variety for a range of behaviors and feelings and Mm -hmm. um, beliefs. Okay. How do you think that, that um, affected the the core belief you had that there's something inherently wrong? Did it, did it set in that, okay, well maybe not everything is wrong with me. So actually, I would say that in college, that it, what it did was it made me feel like, oh, there are alternative ways of being. And I think it really helped me realize maybe I could get help. So I, all during my oh, eating disorder, I never got, I didn't get any help. I was, I was seen by the family um, pediatrician. They weighed me every week. Um, back this was back when they, I was in the Midwest in Illinois and they didn't, um, they actually really didn't know I was anorexic. It, it took them a while to figure that out. And they were doing all kinds of tests and rolling out all kinds of illnesses and things. And, and it, how old were you? 14. Okay. You said 14. And actually I can remember, 
I remember another experience of deep shame, actually. Mm. I'd forgotten about this, but I'd gone and I'd been weighed. Um, and the doctor gave me an envelope to bring home to my mom. And I got in the car and I was with my sister. My older sister, Kathy, had taken me. She was supportive, very supportive during difficult times. And I got in the car and I said, oh, I'm supposed to give this to mom. And and I was like, I, I'm going to open it up. And she she was she was she was much more of a rebel. She was like, <laughs> Go ahead, open it. So we I opened it up, and and it was an article about about anorexia that had been like in the New York Times or something that this doctor was sending home to my mom. You know, this before there was email and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And I remember I just read it, and I just felt awful. I just felt oh, a terrible God. shame. Like like now there really is something wrong with me. You know, they, oh, wow. and, they, and they figured it out. They figured out what's wrong. I felt so exposed. And so, um, so that, you know, so, you know, and, and so, again, so say more, dive into that feeling because it's kind of like, I mean, dive into that, the shame, because it's, a, it, it, it was as though, oh, there's proof and how your mind grasps onto that. There's proof something's inherently wrong. Like, right. What right. And now there's like? something. Before there was, it was just, it was just me and trying to trying to make sure other people didn't find out this about me or couldn't see this about me. Just this sense that I knew mm-hmm. I was different. There was something wrong with me, but also this sense that, but I could put on a performance. I could put on a mask. I could, you know, hide. And um, now see. it was kind of like now there's a label. Okay. There's been a label attached to me. There's a name for at least one aspect of what's wrong with me. So now you're a sensitive anorexic. Yes. Now. Yes. 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 And, um, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. It it was a lot. And so, you know what I'm saying? So again, had the family pediatrician, I mean, he was consulting with people trying to figure out, he's had this young teenage girl. He, I mean, this was back in the, you know, late seventies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, this was before Karen Carpenter and, you know, a lot of celebrity. I mean, they just didn't know, um, you know, if there had been a social worker or someone who understood, there would have been sensitivity to this. I, I, to this day, I mean, I don't blame anyone. I'm not angry or bitter with anyone. It is just what I experienced, though. I mean, I just say that as my, as, as a deep wound that I experienced. It's um, a, as a result wound. Of yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have this your mind's telling you, okay, there's this proof that of the, the flaw or that I am a flaw. And then you enter college and with that core wound and belief, mm-hmm. then there's some more tolerance. Um, right. How did that shift? So the outside, you're not around the family with the letter lingering in your parents' heads or your head and and the label. But when you're in college, the tolerance, how did that start or or what did it start to to kind of change within you? You said like maybe I'm not all wrong. Maybe maybe what what happened next? 
I think it was just meeting people that were open and shared that they had been in trouble in high school or um, like I, I can remember meeting really nice people who admitted that they had shoplifted at some point or something uh-huh. and thinking, you know, oh, wow, you know, no, like I could never, if I had ever done that, that would be like the final straw. It's so, so interesting because here was someone that actually did something quote unquote wrong, but your situation wasn't wrong. You had a disease. Right. Right. But it helped. It helped me because I think, again, part of the shame part for me is that um, just feeling so different and feeling like I have to hide this about me and exposure to people that were just very comfortable. Like they knew that they had done things wrong or flawed, but they, they didn't see it as an indication that, I mean, they were or talking about that was the wrong thing I did. So I, it, was this, it was me starting to see that there's something, starting to understand the shades of of the feelings of what's what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And, and, and knowing that there were people who were okay, admitting they were just human. And that- Like you had a safe place to perhaps, or, or to be vulnerable. That's the thing is that what we feel vulnerable about is what, we have learned to feel or have shame about in ourselves. So did you end up feeling safe enough to dive into the vulnerability of, of reaching out for help with that or sharing it with others? And how did that? So I did. So that, that's transforming that was, shame into power. That's a turning point for me. Okay. So again, other people's willingness to be vulnerable mm-hmm. helped me see that maybe there there were possibilities. Okay. And so I, I started to get interested and I actually wrote to a, like an eating disorder organization, there were newsletters back then that you, and I wrote to them and said, is there someone who could help me? And Oh, wow. Do you realize yeah. how courageous that, that was? I was pretty desperate. I was pretty wow. desperate. Wow. When I say I was sensitive, I, you know, I was really struggling with some depression and I was having trouble, trouble with grades, like staying focused. I was just, it was just, um, I, I, in the end I ended up, I transferred, I was at the university of Illinois and I transferred back to Boston college. So it's just, it's so, it's so complicated. <laughs> so go but you part. reached out while you're navigating this thing that, that, is is complicated to live with. You know, mm-hmm. I've had some of the same same struggles in the past around the same age, and mm-hmm. and you know we can talk more about that. But I but you it's when you're in it, navigating it, and then you're aware, and then you reached out because it's everyone assumes it's like you want to be a skinny thing, and it has nothing to do with that. The fact that you reached out, um was amazing. It's like one of the most courageous things. That it's yes. And you know what? I think now it was actually courageous because I didn't have a lot of reason to have faith in professionals given how they had treated, you know, given the way. Oh, interesting. So it's interesting that I did, but I, but I did. And um, my first experience was this like psychiatrist who was at locally 
in the area of the University of Illinois where I was a student. And you know what? My and he was part of this newspaper? He was just someone recommended as somebody I could go and see, which, okay. was, which was kind of odd. But anyway, um, I ended up seeing him and he ended up being a bad experience. He was like, oh, first wow. of all, you want you suggested medication and I was not interested in weight. I didn't trust him. I wasn't going to try that. And he just kept saying like, okay, like he all, he pretty much was kind of like, what's wrong with you? Cause he was oh like, my God. he was like, you're smart. You've got all like, he really did it. I'm not kidding you. It, it was, it was mind blowing. So I actually just, I just, I think I had gotten a, a number of different names of people. So I went to that person and then I, at that point, this person who really helped me was a young graduate student who was at the University of Illinois and she was studying anorexia and she was like a nutritionist, but she was running a group for, for, for girls that, you know, had eating disorders. A grad student? It was a grad student and she got me into the, her group and she met with me and she was, she was, a, and that was huge to get into a group oh. too, because when you realize like, wait a second, I didn't know that I wasn't this rare oddity too. So to find out there was a whole group of people at the university that we're all going to talk about our eating disorder. What was that like walking in? And, and again, how courageous you just, you kept trying to figure it out. There was this instinct in you that, that this right then and there in those years, I mean, this isn't me, quote unquote, you didn't literally think this, but this isn't like my true self. This is something happening. Right. And, and you know what I'm, you know, that grain of truth while you were, while you reached out and then the bad experience with the doctor and then your, your reaching out again, like that was in you. Yeah. Yes. And then when you meet these other students, mm-hmm. what I was that? Definitely, I definitely knew I definitely had that sense that there's something wrong with me and I'm really not like that. I'm like, I definitely had a sense that, that there was something about me that wasn't fully understood. That okay. Someone, that there Wait was some Say that again. Cause that switching being in the shame to like this bridge. So it's separated from your core belief and core wound where, where you are it. And then you're getting this calling from this truth, your soul and not the messages from your mind. And then you, so you had a sense, say it again, that. So I, I, again, I grew, something, up, I grew up in a family that was Irish Catholic. So so there's like language that we never would have even used that, that I can right. use now. Mm-hmm. What you're saying really resonates with me. I had a sense that I had some, I had a soul that there was like this, a spiritual being that was my essence and that mm-hmm. somehow, somehow the way my, my, my temperament or my personality, my human, my humanness, uh-huh. Um, was presenting in a way that that people couldn't see that that there was something there was something really good and pure something that I I could do like there's like I could do so that motivated my desire to get help because I was really wanted to be a 
a productive, helpful. I really wanted to be a helpful person. I mean, I'm well, you said your humanness or the presentation didn't reflect all of you or you. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And I look back at that now and I think because I needed more help developing certain skills, okay. you know, like, like impulse control and emotion regulation, you know, and, and had I gotten that, I probably would have, you know, developed just fine. And, you know, I think. For and that's setting your mind in the right place. That's transforming the, the shame based thoughts that you're like, okay, this is my humanness. I know this is really me. And so I'm going to set my mind on the developmental part. I'm going to fill, I'm going to switch the feelings of shame into, you said emotional regulation and what? Um, I was just thinking like impulse control. Okay. I think we really started, that's when I started to feel like, because I wasn't studying psychology in college even. Mm -hmm. But that's when I started to realize, wait a second, I think I need to understand human behavior and, okay. and human cognition. That's how I kind of got into the field of psychology, because I realized that there was there was a difference between who I thought I was at my essence okay. and how I was navigating the world. Okay. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's beautiful. That's a home. Right. That's a home within. Right. I felt like there was a home within me and I couldn't get there. Right. I couldn't get there because I kept doing things or making decisions or think or, or thinking things. So what happened thereafter? I mean, so you're an undergrad student and you get in this group and when, what was the next kind of phase and step? So I just, I, I really, I struggled. I struggled and, you know, um, it took a, took a long time. I ended up after two years at the university of Illinois, I transferred 
my I my family had moved to Illinois when I was in seventh grade, and then I had stayed, got through high school there. But when I got accepted to to school, um, I was going to go to the University of Illinois to be close to home because my family was there. My dad took a new, another job and they moved back to Boston. Okay, so that was very unfortunate because I hadn't. I felt very fragile. I was still really in the grip of an eating disorder, but I was going to go to college two hours away and felt like it was going to be helpful to be able to go home a lot. And they, they moved back to Boston. Mm -hmm. So two years into it, I'm still struggling, struggling. Um, My mom is very helpful in helping me transfer. And I transferred to Boston college where I just felt safer being closer to my, to my family of origin. Um, And then I just kept pursuing more. I, then I got actually in Boston, I got access to better therapists and people, you know, again, I used that same, it was called the, um, the national eating disorder association, you know, and they, mm-hmm. I, I asked them for resources and I started to find, I started to get good therapy and people that started to help me understand and people that I, I, I started to say like all the stuff that I had done that I thought was so embarrassing and everything. And they were like, Oh, well, but yes, you were 10, you know, and I, I different was, things that you had never kind of heard. Right. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, as a psychologist and in the profession, we would say sometimes what we'll do is someone will share something and they'll, they'll be so conflicted about it. And we call it normalizing. And we point out to them, like, actually that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty normal. That's pretty much. And I had that experience over and over again, like really? Cause I thought that was so, I thought that was me. So, you know, again, that's one of the ways that um, through talking through and working through what felt shameful to me, I felt like, oh, you mean I do belong? Like I'm connected. I'm not different and separate. Like I started to get a sense of my belonging and my connection. I wasn't as foreign as I thought I was. Right. This is so beautiful. It's so, it's so, it's, it's really um, a really great representation of, of the walking out of your, a life dictated by a survivalist mind. Right. 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 And the interesting thing was during college, of course you have lots of opportunities. I never, ever did try any drugs. I had that sense. I was so fragile Mm-hmm. I had that sense that, and I was already, you know, obsessive and compulsively dieting. I just, I just, so, and, and again, I think that's a, that's a part of like, there was some, some soul spirit or something that mm-hmm. was guiding me. And so I had a sense that even as I struggled with all of this and felt very alone and disconnected, that there was something, some, you know, now, I mean. So was that in retrospect? Um, at, on the time or, or was there a conscious, like sitting down, I'm going to meditate or pray or, or were you going to church? Because there's a big difference between those two. And, and, um, the, the set, the first one is there. It's this essence and calling that mm-hmm. is like always there. It, it's always there and it may come up in like curiosity about the wave pattern or, or mm-hmm. 
smiling back to the to a child smiling or and there's there's just something about it's a core innocence that we all have and come from and what do you think looking back like drew drove that like was it growing up with the religion what was or or it just was you were calmer or you're quieting your mind more because that is so key yeah it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, med- the meditation stuff was, was not on my radar. So I think it was, I think there were part, yeah. there was, there were part of, of, of the, my Catholic upbringing that I think was soothing and comforting. You know, when you hear certain things like, you know, Jesus forgiving everything, and there were a lot of stories, but it was also a source of conflict too, because there was so much worry about judgment and all of that. So I think it was just a very mixed experience, but something about that, I just felt some, I always had some hope that, you know, if I could just hang in there, there was something, there was something beyond all the, these deep and dark feelings, um, so compare that feeling that that state at the time to then when you're buried in the core belief and and um, wound as a child. Mm-hmm. Very different, right? Oh, very, very, very different. Very different. Um, you know, I was then, actually. Yeah. I'm. It was. I, I've never read this book. It's been around forever. In fact, they they had the 25th anniversary. It's called The Seed of the Soul. Uh-huh. And, um just listening to that, you know, and he was talking, he's talking about how, you know, there are times when you just have real soul pain, just soul pain. It's that sense of just helplessness, hopelessness, you know, Mm -hmm. such disconnection. And I definitely, you know, knew that kind of soul pain. And yet. That's the spirit calling though. Right. 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 That's the sign. I think now I look back and I think now, like when you feel that mm-hmm. you are so, that's just how you know how disconnected you are from your essence when you're in that level of pain. And that's the point where there can be transformation, sitting in a safe place of your own and listening, Right. just listening, right. starting right. with your breath. Right. Right. And you'll that's see right. there's a gem in it versus all the thoughts that come that say, why are you feeling this way? You're sensitive, (laughs) you know, um, are controlling things and forget not eating, forgetting to eat, you know. Um, And okay, from there on out, how did you nurture that? How did you nurture that, that soul voice? I think I had many, many years where I just needed to be nurtured. I really did find some good therapy. And I particularly had one therapist who I worked with for a very long time. And she had specialized in eating disorders. And she was, she was, she was willing to be a little bit um, more self-disclosing with me than, Mm -hmm. you know, other therapists that kind of had that stance of like, you know, you're not going to know anything about me, which was made me very uncomfortable because if, if you don't know anything about the other person, you don't see them as fully human either. They, they mm-hmm. seem so perfect. And she was just a, a much more, um, 
you know, I had actually found her because I was in, I had read something she'd written and in she'd written about treating girls with eating disorders. And, you know, she, she'd written in this passage that one of her young patients had called her and, and she wrote about how like, okay, so she got her pillow and her blanket. And I could just like the fact that I could, she was a real person. I thought that's who I want to work with. Somebody who's like a real person, not, okay. not, not that it's going to be like, Somebody have to worry talking about. to you who was relatable and would right see you and you could connect right. with her. And I just needed, I just needed mm. to be nurtured. I just, I mean, I just did a lot of like, I just would show up and I did a lot of crying and I did a lot of like recounting mm. difficult situations and just that there was somebody who was interested and, and cared and didn't think I was, you know, exaggerating and mm -hmm. blowing things out of proportion. It was so, that was so healing. That was so incredibly um, transformational. And we all deserve a safe place to share, cry and be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And if we can't find that place outside us, there is a place within us and I call it home. Yeah. I want to continue with your story and so, so much. There's so much more to ask you and to share. And I really, really appreciate you. You opening up because this is also a topic that isn't talked about a lot. Right. The underlying process of healing from, mm -hmm. from an issue with weight, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Okay, so you're at this point of healing and having a safe place, being seen. And what was that feeling like when you felt seen? You felt like, oh, there's not something wrong. I'm not inherently flawed. And kind of lifting the layers of that core wound and belief so that's the part that things kind of confusing um because i actually that that's how therapy works and when i work with people i try to explain this to them that that it isn't really clear <laughs> i didn't have a clear sense of like what was happening or whatever it was it was experiential right so mm -hmm. something was shifting and um and, you know, my therapist was, was amazing. However, something I added on to the kind of, she was like the primary model for me, for how I, how I am as a therapist, but something I've added on is I, I, I really try to say to people things like, you know, I, what I see has shifted in you and give them ex specific examples because I, I didn't have that sense. It was definitely things had changed and shifted but I wasn't that aware. And I, it wasn't until later on when I went back to graduate school and I was studying psychology that I started to have to do reflection papers mm. for school and I started to put the pieces together. So I was feeling a change, but I don't know that I would have had language. No, for it. The, the, the awareness wasn't there. You, you were in it. Right. That's right. 
what would you describe kind of the, the, the feelings in those, in, in that phase? It was, was there like an anxiety? Was there like a sense of peace? It was, or it was all over the place. And so you kept doing more. You kept. I think there was just a willingness. There was a willingness to, there was an increased ability to be vulnerable. Okay. Yeah. You know, over time. So what happened was during that time period, I'd had journals from when I was um, in the throes of the really darkest days of my eating disorder. And I'd had um, some, one of through, I was still part of that organization, the eating disorder organization. And some, a researcher was doing something on that and, asked if I'd be willing to share my journals. So I started doing that. Like, and I wrote, I wrote. That was courageous. I wrote a letter to a family friend that had had an eating. So I started to share my story. Mm -hmm. And remember the terrible shame I had when I first saw this article that said, I mean, I wasn't going to say I had anorexia. I mean, wow, I could not spit those words out of my mouth. And now I'd gotten to a place where, it's just, it was a part of my story, not who I was. Okay. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That gives me chills. That's beautiful. And so in the reflection back, the childhood pattern and then the, the experiencing part, and then coming to a place of complete belief and understanding it's you, of your soul being the truth and then how your mind had interpreted this, this challenge in life, mm-hmm. right? And then in, from that place, you went to – so that's where the choice between and, – and it is living the work today, right? Where, oh. where the thoughts will come up and, and – I always say they're most are fear and judgment based and it's our mind survivalist in nature, but then we can choose love and that navigating that, that space of being a spirit in, in a body that had these patterns or has them, but you're aware now. Right. And then with your work, what happened then later and where did you, end up focusing your professional work? So I started my professional work. um, So when I went, when I was back in in graduate school, I really at that point wanted to work with children because I really felt like it would have helped me as a child to have had someone, someone who could have worked with me and guide me a little bit. I mean, I never saw a guidance counselor or anything like that in school. Um, so I was really committed to trying to work with children and 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 families because if you work with children, it's families. So I did that, um, and I worked with kids in in a school setting for for a couple oh. of years, and you know in the Boston public schools, kids who were really kids who are at what would have been considered the behavioral school who couldn't who couldn't stay in the normal schools anymore. Uh, Boston has its own sort of outplacement schools for the for sensitive kids. Like kids. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sensitive, well, sensitive slash problematic kids, exactly. And um, in the first episode, um, Dr. Cronin refers and goes over her childhood and and a couple of things where she was called sensitive, just 
an FYI to listen to the first podcast before this. <laughs> so you were started working with the with those children. Yes. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, just as a psychologist, as a psychologist, okay. and I think it was just, it was my effort to, I think there were two things that were, were really continued. Like you said, it's, it's a, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still resolving um, old wounds and all of that. But two things that were really pivotal was being able to be a parent myself. So and being able to just do things differently as a parent was a way of sort of like, every time I did something different, I felt like I was doing it for the younger part of myself as well. Oh, and then, yeah. so there's, so that piece of it to parenting, but then also providing therapy to kids who were really having a hard time. That felt very cathartic too. So you became a mother um, before, during the work with children? Right. So I became a mom before I became a psychologist. Wow. My gosh, yeah. superwoman. Yeah. Yeah. I had actually, you know, like when I graduated from college, undergraduate, I'd been like a communications major. So I got into like public relations and I did human resource management. So I had been doing things sort of around how the, how, how human beings communicate and Mm -hmm. interact and relate to each other, but I hadn't gotten into like psychology Mm -hmm. per se. So I had um, worked in human resources until I had my first child. And then I went back to graduate school when he was three months old. um, And I got a master's in uh, human development and psychology. And I, then I took a research job on a childcare study. Then I went on and had two more kids and I did some part-time stuff, but I hadn't really continued. I just got my master's. And so then it was really, it was like 12 years later that I went back for, to get a doctoral degree. Wow. Yeah. Spread out. <laughs> wow. And your first child was a girl, a boy? No, I had a son. My, my first child was a son and then I had two girls. Okay. Yeah. So can you give an example of when uh, you were in a professional moment um, and then you remembered um, your own like little girl or or um, within you and or a parenting moment and how those tied over to allow you to provide a safe place for someone else to be vulnerable? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Again, as I think, we do that um, as parents. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, I mean, I think for me, uh, something that's been so pivotal is becoming a more spiritual person, you know, getting access to language, to concepts and to a uh, different mindset, you know, this, mm-hmm. this, this whole idea of, um, you know, and, and recognizing that the mind and body are connected and all that kind of stuff was just foreign to me. I mean, I definitely grew up with the more, you know, a more academic approach to understanding life, which was, you know, the old sciences and, um, and you know, a lot of probably religious beliefs. And it's so, it's so much more helpful to me to be able to talk about things like spirit and soul and all of that, and to be able to be a a fully human person and be imperfect Mm -hmm. versus 
trying to present myself as like, oh, here I am. I'm like the psychologist. I figured everything out and I'm going to sit here and tell you how you can live your life. I prefer when someone brings something up to share like, oh yes. Like I've told many of my, in the past when I worked with teenagers, you know, it, that I had an eating disorder. I think it, it just puts them at ease to think, okay, I'm pretty sure she's not going to judge me. Okay. He didn't have like this perfect teenage experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had a diagnosis, you know what I mean? Right. For me that, you know, and I think when I work with parents, I tell parents all the time, like, of course, of course I've yelled at my kids. Of course I've made mistakes. Of course my children have been angry at me and, and confronted me with things that I probably shouldn't have done. That isn't, the problem, the problem is that, you know, kids want to do that and they, they come against, come up against a parent who feels disrespected or unappreciated. And so, so I'm always using examples of my own um, past experiences, whether it's a hurt or um, a mistake in the service of trying to make other people feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. and feel less shame. So what do you think then is the biggest obstacle um, from uh, just somebody who's out there and is considering, you know, getting help for something um, who hasn't yet even reached out? Um, What do you think or what have you experienced as the biggest obstacle to kind of convincing, for lack of a better word, somebody to reach out? for help. help. Then what has been the biggest obstacle once they're like in front of you? Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good question. And I think that maybe one approach to, if you haven't reached out for help, maybe what you do is you start by when you do reach out for help, you tell the person that you're, that it's very hard. I, have thought about reaching out, start by just start by disclosing that and see how the person responds to you. That you relate to how hard it is. Before you even, yes, before you even get into like what your, what your shame issues are or what Mm -hmm. you just, you say, you share that with the person to kind of protect yourself a little bit, because if the person goes like, well, what do you mean? You know, to gauge how warm and open the person is, because I think if you're, all right, if you have shame issues, you 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 can't have you can't have the typically typically trained or the traditionally trained person. You need somebody. I mean, I remember reading that a long time ago too. Like the best people to help someone with alcoholism is some a recovered right. You know, That's alcoholic. Yeah, because you know, I mean, I'm just saying if if you you need to find. So I would say to someone who hasn't hasn't reached out yet or has wanted to, but is anxious, has a lot of fear that they just start with that. And they go and they say like, so I just, I thought I, I would first, I would tell you that this is really hard for me. I'm really nervous. I don't know where to begin. I'm a little, a little overwhelmed or afraid. Start with that because it's true and it's honest and it doesn't, it's not going to make you quite as vulnerable as getting into something more difficult. And it'll give you a way to gauge the person because if the person goes like, well, I don't understand or tell me more or if they don't provide the right kind of comfort because you really need to like 
the most important thing is that find somebody that feels a good, like a good match to you. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? I don't know. Like, you know, my kids, when I've encouraged them to all explore therapy, I would say to them, go see two or three people and then see how it feels because there's not a right or wrong person out there, but it's just how it feels. And so I think, you know, starting with that, Mm -hmm. because if you can start right away and say, this is hard for me, or I've, I, it's taken me a long time to do this. And the person can help you feel comfortable about that and put you at ease. That's going to open the door to, to. That was your experience also. That there may be an awkward or a bad experience with the first one, like, like you had, you reached out to, but that doesn't mean that they all are like that or that, you know, that's right. That's right. And something in me knew that. I think maybe because when I had written to the organization, they said, try, they, I think they gave me a list of like four or five people. And they said, here, here are some people. They weren't really vouching for any of them. And mm-hmm. so I think I was kind of encouraged to reach out to all of them, you know, reach out to them, you know. I mean, one was a psychiatrist, one was a, um, a therapist, one was this graduate student nutritionist. And, you know, in the end, I think I reached out to three of three of the five of them and, um, you know, the irony was the first appointment was I thought, oh, I'll go for the psychiatrist, like the most uh, educated, but, and that was the least helpful. Oh, interesting. You know? Yeah. So that might happen, but, yeah. but keep following, you know, I know for me, it was the same kind of process, but that, that voice of truth and soul was still there and nudging and, and responding to that and then trying again and reaching out more. Um, you know, anyone out there that has had bad experiences um, with getting a therapist or psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason that instinct came in and just keep trying and you'll find the right one. Now, when somebody is in your office, um, this is a loaded question, but like, what do you think is the biggest, you know, impediment? Um, and it relates to that feeling of safety, right? That that connection to be vulnerable. And what do you think is like the most important thing that we could say to those that that have reached out and that are beginning their process of therapy to are with somebody they feel comfortable with, hopefully, and just kind of starting to kind of dive in and break open. Yeah, I think, I think, um, I mean, I, something I, I will say to people too, is like, we're, we're human too. I mean, no one, you're not, there's no one that has it all figured out. And so um, I think what I try to do is model that you don't, you can still be a human and be imperfect and be really good at your job. You know what I mean? Or you mm-hmm. could, you can still be a, a human being and imperfect, admit that you're making mistakes and still be a really good parent. Right. It's getting away from sort of black or white thinking, all or nothing thinking or good or bad thinking. Um, I very early on in my career, I got exposed to dialectical behavior therapy, which was huge for me because that's when I first learned like the mindfulness component. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything for me because it was the dialectic is this idea that of course you could you could be a very happy child 
with all with everything you ever needed and loving parents and all kinds of privilege and be miserable. Exactly. And our mind will think in these polarities. And this is a survivalist mind. It's thinks it's helping us to survive, but it'll, it'll exactly say you shouldn't feel this way. Right. Because it's only this way, but you can absolutely be grateful and miserable at the same time. Right. And that was like mind blowing. That, that was just mind blowing for me. It was, it was similar to getting to college and being like, wait a minute, you shoplifted and you're telling people you did that. That was just like mind boggling. Like, like if you do anything bad, you keep that secret. Don't ever tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And so, so the dialectic was, was like another big, huge thing. And that was, you know, my first year um, in a clinical practice. That's great. Then that's a quick way to transform shame-based thoughts into power. Right. Is this feeling is okay. Right. If I'm, I'm feeling shame or I'm feeling guilty, or if it's mm-hmm. something more layered, like what we were talking about, right. like, okay, I recognize it. I'm also really proud. I just reached out for help. Mm-hmm. That I just went to therapy. I didn't, you know, share about whatever, some argument mm-hmm. that happened in the morning uh, in this therapy session or something, but, mm-hmm. and I'm ashamed, but I went just right. kind of. And again, I think to, to, for people to know that you're not obligated to open up and share everything right away. It's not even always appropriate. Like I said, I, I would suggest somebody start with something um, like just start with how you feel about going to a first appointment. You don't have to get into things. You don't have to make yourself that vulnerable. I mean, mm-hmm. a therapist needs to earn your trust. You know, they need to earn your trust. And they do that by, you know, how they respond, even if they're nonverbal, by, by you know, the their capacity to make you feel comfortable, even, you know, even when you're um, getting into like really difficult material. So I know for, 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 for me, like there've been times when someone will look really sad and they're not, they're not saying that. And I'll, and I'll say to them, you know, you look, you, you just, something changed and you look kind of sad right now. And they'll be like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. And I'll say, all right, I'm just, I'm feeling kind of sad myself. Cause I, it does feel. And when I say that, like, well, I'm kind of feeling sad because you look kind of sad. Okay. Crying. So again, it's that human connection. They'll often start crying okay. and, Right. Cause they're reluctant to say that they're feeling sad. And so I'll just say, cause something in me will, I will, you feel will feel sad, sad. empathic, and, but I'll just use myself and say, well, gosh, now I, I'm just feeling kind of sad. Cause I, what just, is this the perception yeah. I had was that you are sad. And then they, they kind of let go. Okay. So it's, you know, it's um that, and that takes time though. That takes time. So I, I would also that. say to anyone who hasn't thought like, it can be bumpy and awkward and, you know, you kind of, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't have to be, it, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be, you know, smooth sailing. You do want to though feel like you can ask questions and stuff. You don't want to f- ever feel intimidated. Okay. That's really important. Mm-hmm. So what, what is another one of those? Like you, that you don't want to, you don't want someone to feel shouldn't be belittled, shouldn't be. Right. Right. You you don't want to ever feel, you don't want to ever have to feel like, by intimidated, I mean, like, you don't want to leave and 
if something didn't sit oh, well, I like I tell people, um, tell people all the time, like if something doesn't land well with you, like just come back and tell me the next time. Like, so you want to definitely, you want someone who's inviting, inviting okay. um, feedback and, um, and, and sometimes you'll see that in somebody's policies or you'll see it in the description. Now that everything, everybody's online, mm-hmm. you can find a therapist will say I'm interactive or I'm um, relation relational. Those are kind of okay. cues that this person's, going to kind of like working with you and going to be trying to, oh, you mean a questionnaire to the client or that you will describe yourself in po- like in their policies, sometimes in okay. policies or in the description of how they operate, what kind of a approach they take. Um, okay. And you know, you're practicing today. Um, a lot. I mean, I know we talked about how you began with kids and then you did teens. So kids in schools and then teens. And then after that, you started working with adults or do you still focus? I still, no, then I really want I got into adults because I really realized that um, as a parent and as my own children were getting older, I, it could be more effective helping the parents of these kids. Okay. That, that there was a real need for people, um, for people that could coach parents that have highly sensitive children because mm-hmm. those they often get a, a very behavioral, they'll get someone telling them to do very behavioral things. Like you need to set limits and there need to be consequences and all of that kind of thing that it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work. Okay. Um, doesn't that's work. super important. So what, so there's this behaviors and there's these consequences now separate or, or versus that what, is the way to go. Is it exactly what we were talking about that helped you? So see them. Right. The way to go is that is to, yes, to see them. So for example, um, you, you have a child and they're not they're The teacher reaches out and says they're they're not turning in their homework or something Mm -hmm. instead of like sitting them down and saying, listen, I'm going to start checking your homework now every night and you know, if there's one more time that you don't get that, you're you're not doing your homework. You're not gonna you're not gonna get television anymore. We're gonna start taking things away. Even a very loving parent with good intentions might do that. Set that all up. That doesn't help the child because the child's getting the message: homework's really important, and I'm gonna be in trouble, and I'm gonna lose things if I don't. But you need to understand why. What's going on? Okay. You need to look and see what the issue is, and. And you need to have a conversation with your child as if they're they're the expert on themselves, not you. Okay. And you say to them, so your teachers let me know. And and now I'm aware of, your, you know, you're having something trouble with your homework. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what what about that is hard for you? You know, what what's going on with your homework? And often a kid will say, I, I don't know. I don't know. And so then you then your job becomes to kind of offer them a menu. Like, you know, when you go to a restaurant, here's the options you have. And you say to the kid, well, does it feel like it's too hard for you? Do you feel like um, it's the, you know, you're trying to do it at the wrong time of the day? Are you having trouble understanding certain things? Are you angry with your teacher? You know, is the child, I mean, you know, and then they, let the child, cause then the child can say, really, you know about that? You know, okay. <laughs> they can say like, oh, oh yeah. Angry with the teacher? That's so not it's helping wow. them yeah. find the language to put 
the scenario out there and then um, get to the feelings, get to the, the underlying it's the layers. It's shaming them. Okay. It's the opposite of shaming them. It's instead of saying to them, well, you know, you're pretty, this is pretty rotten. You know, and the behavior, you shouldn't do that. Stop. You're going to be punished for it. Right. That whole, you know, it, I even grew up with the generation of parents or, or certainly my, like my grandmother, my grandmother would frequently say, you should be ashamed of yourself. She would just tell you that, like, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Mm-hmm. You should feel really bad about that. And again, it was meant to instill morals and values and that kind of thing. But if you're a sensitive kid, I was like, oh, I, I felt very ashamed. So the alternative is okay. guidance, direction, problem solving, working with them. You know, I really do. I did this training with them um, on highly, they used to call them highly explosive children. Now they're considered more highly sensitive children, but and I did this training with um, Ross Green and Stuart Ablom. It was so resonated with me. Like they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And this is also this is also Marshall Linehan in dialectical behavior therapy. She'll say everybody is doing the best they can. They can do better, of course. But this is the best on any given day. This is the best. You're always going to see the best. Mm-hmm. So someone who's floundering or actually problematic. That's the, that's the best they can come up with. So you need to look at that and work with that. Choose love. Yeah. You need to choose, choose, choose love. Anything anybody does is either an act of love or a cry for love. And and whatever you're observing, they're, they're doing either in one way, but getting in that place yes. of sitting back and also not taking it personally. And right. then you'll see, okay, if I'm in the fear and judgment, then they'll do what you, what you explained. It'll be the label. It'll right. be the no, 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 no. And there, and there's just more pushback. Right. I like seeing. Yeah. I like to coach people and say, then as soon as you realize you're having a critical thought, mm-hmm. make this shift from critical to curious. Like, that's you know, my oldest son. Diego, his podcast just released the first interview, and he says diving into that innate curiosity in each of us is the first, he believes, starting point on a healing journey. Right. And get and then he talked about applying the scientific method to life things. And you're saying so a dialectical behavioral thought and work. You're saying get curious about the thought. Right. Get curious. Get curious about the thought. Get curious about the behavior. Get curious about the emotion. Like, okay, what where where is this coming from? Like, like curious about the homework. Like, what's happening to your homework? Like, what's going on? You know, and we all know when someone's genuinely curious and when someone is being critical. We all know that. So You know, when you embrace and you um, interact with others with a more loving, open-minded, curious stance, you can make big changes. And just saying, I can see that you're really upset. Well, and it's just going and- back to like, what's your assumption? I mean, why are, why are we so quick to assume that what people are doing is intended? Right or wrong. For, for malice or something. Maybe, yes. 
that's our mind in separating us in fear and judgment. And why is that? You're right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just our negativity bias that, you know, people talk about that, you know, we're on high alert for problems because the sooner we identify a problem, the better our chances are of averting some sort of danger. And it doesn't True. serve as well because we don't live in such a dangerous Or holding ourselves accountable. So it's all the outside blame. Right. Right. So get curious about your own thought and get curious about the behavior of another's, that, that another's thoughts is creating. Right. And right. yes, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to give um, an example. I've been working hard over the last couple of years um, with my little ones. And, and um, I mean, just it's just so beautiful, the more consistent and the longer time that passes. And um, the other day, uh, one of my little ones did something um, and it broke something. And we were scuttling, kind of trying to get our way to school to be on time. And so I was navigating that and he ended up um, running to me with something in his hand that was broken, that he broke and just was like, fell into my arms and just felt safe. Felt like he didn't have to hide it. He didn't, he knew mommy wasn't gonna, you know, focus on that, on the thing. And it was just like, I just put my hand on his back and it was just like, wow. He wasn't taking it out on himself, what he was feeling, his guilt and shame or whatever it was in the moment, anger, Um, nor was he taking it out on anybody else. It was just this perfect moment of acknowledging his response to whatever upset him that made him do that and accepting in that part of vulnerability what he actually did. And it just was total acceptance, that place of vulnerability and not all those other added layers of labels, punishment, whatever it was. And it was beautiful. It was just beautiful because then we can dive into the other things, you know, of teaching how he's responding to his feelings and how it affects the behavior, like, mm-hmm. which we have been for a couple of years. And and having him do that was like exactly what we want to do as adults, exactly mm-hmm. what we want to do in relationships. Right. Makes me think of the work of Kristen Neff and um, uh, uh, Chris Germer. And it's just about Mm. the power of compassion and self-compassion that, you know, when we say, for example, um, as an adult, if you drop something and it breaks, what's the first thing we tend to do? I'm so stupid. Yeah. You know, so stupid or, oh my God, that costs a lot of money or, oh, I'm going to have to clean this up. This is where we go. Or I'm going to get in trouble. They're going to say you're so clumsy. Someone's going to, or, or someone's going to be mad at me or something. They're, that's it. Rather than, you know, what if we could train ourselves to so the minute you drop something, you could say like, this is a difficult moment. This is a moment of, wow, this is a moment of suffering. 
This is really difficult. Just take a deep breath. It's like not, it's not, it's not being, you know, sugarcoating anything. It's like, yeah, okay. I, this, this item just broke. This is a mess. This is a moment of difficulty. It's a moment of, this is a moment of small suffering. Right. Then, then you move from there, but how, this is why we're so, we're all exhausted and stressed out because our, all this self-talk and our immediate reaction to ourselves is so shame inducing. Right. But when we have that home or that whatever you want to call your space in the middle between the awareness of the thoughts and then your soul, truth speaking, it it gets less exhausting to navigate being a a spirit in a body with a mind that's nonstop. Yes. And I think, I think the the thing to say about that is that you really, you have to cultivate that connection to that home within I mean, I meditate every day. Um, I think you need to have a steady um, stream of the right content coming your way because the alternative is to live in the culture where the media set the agenda and it's just movies and billboards and magazine advertisements and radio announcements and competitions and everything. If you don't have something countering that, you'll go back to an old mindset. So I listen to podcasts. I'm always reading the new books about mindfulness, spirituality, things like that. You have to do that. And then you have to take some time. It can be five minutes a day. It doesn't You don't have to meditate. You have to close your eyes and you have to pay attention to what's, what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your body. How does it feel in your body? How does it feel? What is going on in your mind? What are you thinking? What are you worried about? What are you ruminating about? What are you What are you wanting? What are you yearning for? So those, you know, it, it's like your physical health. You have to give a little time and attention to it if you want to improve the quality. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I do hope that this is one of several different conversations with you. Um, I really appreciate your openness and I really appreciate all the wisdom that you shared. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. This important work you're doing. I appreciate, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Of a flame that never dies. You are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, nadia-davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. 
be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, and wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have an online course or an event or a book you'd like to promote? We've got the right audience for you. Our listeners love content like the show you just heard. You can reach our engaged audiences by advertising right here on mindbodyspirit.fm, the podcast network, in shows about wellness, self-care, spirituality, angels, and more. Contact info at mindbodyspirit.fm.